I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello, and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. My name is Thomas Jones. And today I'm speaking with Pooja Bhatia, who's written on Haiti several times for the LRB over the past decade, and has a piece in the next issue of the paper on the assassination of President Jovenel Moise on the 7th of July. Hello, Pooja, and thank you very much for joining me. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. So maybe to begin, you could briefly take us through what happened, or as far as anyone knows for sure, what happened in Port-au-Prince on the night of the 7th of July. So the president was assassinated. The district judge who came in the next day to examine the scene reported that he found his president's body shot 12 times, his left eye gouged out. Moise's wife, Martine, was also shot, and she was taken to South Florida where she convalesced. So she survived. Apart from Moise's family, the district judge reported that day that he was unable to interview anybody who was on the scene. It was noted that Moise's presidential guard didn't seem to fight back, which made people wonder if they were complicit in some way. Uh, For instance, it seems like there weren't shots fired apart from the ones that the assassins discharged. So the next day, the Haitian police commenced a manhunt. They, throughout the course of July 7th and July 8th, they arrested 20-some people, maybe actually 17 people. Several were killed in gunfights. And I think about a half dozen, maybe eight, remained at large as of Thursday or Friday following the assassination. The police said that the majority of them, but for two of them, they were Colombian mercenaries. And two of them were Haitian Americans who said that they were translators. It's really unclear whether the alleged mercenaries did the job. There's a lot more going on in terms of the investigation. There's certainly many factions and people in Haiti who have not just the motive, but or who had not just the motive, but the means, i.e. access to people with weapons to assassinate the president. One story is they got entry to the presidential residence by claiming to be a drug enforcement agency operation, but right. the DEA denies any involvement and there's no evidence that the, any U.S government agency was involved, is there? Right. It's interesting, though, 
there is no evidence that a, a United States agency was involved. However, given the United States's kind of over waning support of Haitian democracy uh, through the years, um, it's not surprising that a lot of people are wondering whether the United States may have had something to do with it. But again, there's not really evidence. And I don't think that from what I've learned so far, it doesn't seem like the United States would really have the motive. They were very vocal in their support and our support for the administration of Moise going way above and beyond what I what I think an administration that was planning to take someone out would do. And there's there's talk of a, a pastor, a Haitian pastor in Florida, who had possibly had the presidential ambitions, who may have is said to have hired the mercenaries, but he, I mean, presumably that's... It's all so strange. Yes, the Haitian National Police said last week that this pastor in South Florida had been part of the recruitment effort and that, yes, he had presidential aspirations. I mean, it's a huge question. It's a huge and important question, who ordered the hit. But I think that there's plenty of other stuff to talk about, you know, aside from that. And, and, as, and, as, we, and as nobody knows, well, apart from those who are involved, nobody knows who did it. That's, it's, yeah, there's point in speculating. And Moise, he said it's unlikely that the US government were involved because he was, well, certainly when he was elected, he, were, he had the support of the US government. He was the, up to a point, he was the United States man in Haiti, right? There were these very messy elections that brought him to power as a successor of Michel Martelli, who in turn had only got through to the second round runoff in 2011 because Hillary Clinton had gone to Haiti and said he should. So it's, you know, there's no reason why the US government should want to do away with their guy. Right. And more recently, the United States, the administration, I mean, as you can imagine, first of all, let's back up to the Trump administration, which began around the same time Moise's, Moise started in office. Now, we know that we know what Trump said about Haiti and um, several other countries. He called them shitholes. So the Trump administration was really not interested in promoting democracy, not even in form in Haiti. And then you have Biden who came to office in January of this year. And for the most part, you know, I mean, they did inherit a mess in Haiti. On the other hand, I don't think that they've been very interested in promoting democracy either. So what you have is in February, there was a broad consensus among Haitians that Moise's term would end on February 7th. And you know, Moise insisted otherwise. He said, given the kind of protracted mess that the election was, you know, it lasted, the whole thing lasted maybe a year, maybe more. It involved a do-over of a complete scrapping of the first election and then a do-over. He argued that he was entitled to another year in office, but many Haitians, most Haitians probably disagreed. And you had massive protests. And here the United States took Moise's side. For a long time, the United States supported his push for a constitutional referendum that would consolidate his power, that would certainly not be very well participated in. They withdrew their support for that sometime in the spring. But they were still pushing for elections, like uh, speedy elections, this year. And while most of Haitian civil society was saying we can, and not just civil society, but 
many people throughout society were saying there's no way that we can have fair, credible elections with Moise in power for a variety of reasons, not just because he had a very, very heavy hand on the electoral machinery, ranging from who gets voter registration cards to where the polling stations are, um, to security at the polling stations, not just because of that, but because the climate of insecurity in Haiti over the past, over the past two and a half, three years has been really atrocious. It's been very difficult for people to go out and do something like vote, let alone, you know, do something like conduct their daily lives. Yeah, because the reasons, I mean, the reasons why Moise was a, was a bad president, as so we say, well, it wasn't just because he wanted to have a second term in office and he mucked around with the elections. I mean, in a sense, if he'd done wonderful things for the lives of ordinary people, then maybe his wanting a second term in office, that would be fine. But Right. I think that the, the lives of ordinary Haitians throughout these, you know, four and a, the four, I guess, four years that he was in office, four and a half years, really, really degraded. You had high inflation to start with. In 2018, in the summer, you had the Haitian government bowing to international pressure, the IMF, um, agreeing, agreeing basically to hike gas prices, which is really a blow to the vast majority of Haitians. Gas affects every, the price of every commodity. You have a period of, so, so what happened in that case is that, you know, there were demonstrations, big demonstrations. I think that it must have been a terrible insult. You know, Haiti had basically, Haiti's leaders had benefited from this program, Petro Carib, which was about oil money, about fuel. And here they are being asked to being asked to bear the brunt of, you know, this enormous price increase, this cost of living increase. Meanwhile, people start asking, well, where did that all that money go? And that was money that Venezuela, from the sale of Venezuelan oil, that Venezuela gave that money to, to countries in the Caribbean. It was sort of aid money from Venezuela, right? Right. The program, I think the program worked such that the Haitian government would pay something like 60% of the price of the gas, and then the rest of it would be very, very, very low interest loan, like a 1% loan. And so you had billions of dollars, basically, that were meant to go to things that Haitians need, like education and sanitation and healthcare and stuff like that. But, you know, it seems like it really didn't go there. Much of it lined the pockets of the politicians, including Moise. An investigation in 2018, I think. I think the results came maybe in 2019. I can't remember. Um, Moise himself called for an investigation or he supported an investigation but it found that his businesses were implicated in some of the disappearance and the disappearance of some of that money, including in the lead up to his kind of uh, being anointed by his predecessor, Martelli. So anyway, so you had this period of growing unrest, growing dissatisfaction with Moise and Moise responds by, by really uh, cracking down on opposition on on you know strongholds of opposition support in ways that are extremely upsetting and one of the, some of the one of the most upsetting things that and terrible things that I've read this year was this um, report from the Human Rights Clinic at Harvard Law School that sort of looks at three of the massacres perpetrated under Moise's regime 
you know, it argues that under a theory of command liability, he should have been, um, there was a reasonable belief that he would have been guilty of crimes against humanity. I mean, you know, hundreds of people often in very poor neighborhoods found their lives disrupted, impossible to live, and often very dangerous over the course of his administration. And the way that that he came to power, I mean, in theory, it's through the processes of of democracy. There was an election which he kind of won and, and so on. But since, I mean, when the first democratic elections were in Haiti were when in 1990, after the, is that right? After yes, which Aristide won the first successful ones, <laughs> successful ones, and that so that so the transition to democracy after decades of dictatorship, and and you've you've written and we talked about Aristide the last time you were on this podcast last November, but then to have gone from that where you have a their elections, first free elections, transition to democracy, a hugely popular president is elected in, and then within thirty years you have someone who's sort of getting through the second round with 18% a turnout of 18% or whatever it is and that sort of collapse of of the democratic process in such a short period of time how did that happen i think one of the main reasons if not the main reason is the meddling of the united states in haiti's democratic processes so starting from that you know very joyous moment in 1990 when aristide is elected i think of the people who turned out voted for him as president and, you know, turnout was something like 67% or something. So, you know, on voting day, I think that, you know, everybody's like sweeping the streets clean because they're taking them. This transition to electoral democracy is something that Haiti and Haitians had dreamed of for so long. But then nine months later, you have Aristide out in a CIA-backed coup. So that kind of sends a very, maybe it didn't take 30 years for that message to come across. I don't know. Um, But it kept being repeated in various ways. So 1994, you have Aristide's restoration with 20,000 Marines, an incredible show of force. But, you know, that came with so many compromises and it came right there that corroded Aristide's, his program, it corroded his popular support. And also presumably the, the fact of ten, coming back with 20,000 US Marines, you're not, that looks like an, more like an invasion than a restoration. Yes, it is. It was an invasion. And I think that, I think that, you know, I mean, I, Haitians at that time, 1990, they had memories of you know, their parents had certainly lived through the first U.S. occupation from 1915 to 1934, a moment of incredible humiliation. And to have that repeated going along with democracy must have been just devastating. So that's 1994. He's back, but with the help of the United States, which is really a double-edged sword, I guess you could say, because you find that, you know, his political party over the latter half of the 1990s really splits over issues of neoliberal reforms and, you know, accusations that Aristide himself is becoming too much a strong man. But I really, I think that it was probably much more about the neoliberal reforms that he was forced to. For example, they had to 
buy rice from subsidized rice in the US? Which... Yes, lowering tariffs, lowering tariffs on American rice, Miami rice, they used to call it in Haiti, which by the way is much different than Haitian rice, the original native Haitian rice, like it's the rice, the heavily subsidized rice that United States agriculture produces tends to be really like not very doesn't have much flavor. It's very bland. It's highly processed and it's highly processed, like everything American, right? <laughs> um, whereas the Haitian Haitian rice was much nuttier, much more nutritious, you know. And also, you know, Haitians before that they tended to eat a lot of other things as sort of starches, you know, potatoes, um, yams, taro, like stuff like that. And then there's this sort of long history. There's a very long history of American intervention since for over a hundred years. But in the last thirty years, and that you've you talk about this um, piece of footage emerged of of Joe Biden saying in 1994 when he was a senator that who cares about Haiti? It could sink into the sea. But is there any sense in which if America, if the United States did just back off and back out of Haiti and stop getting involved at all? That, I mean, there is presumably quite. Uh, there, I mean, there is an argument for that, isn't there? That the best thing that the United States could do is just back right off. Oh yeah, there's a very strong argument for that, and that's what um, a lot of Haitians are calling for. It's just like stop messing with our electoral processes. Stop, you know. It's it's so difficult though because the United. I mean, it's it shouldn't be difficult, but it is. It is difficult. I mean, the United States has been involved and like kind of twisted itself into every single election that Haiti has had. You know, just I I bet for every every election that it's had, you could come up with you could you would find not even scratching the surface too deeply a story of the United States sort of making a political judgment as to whether the elections were credible or, you know, fair. Second rounds canceled, meetings with State Department leaders, negotiate negotiations with the OAS. It's pretty devastating. It's no wonder. So wait, so I actually just wanted to tell you another thing, which is that I remember um, after the earthquake 2010, this is what led to the rise of Michel Martelly, who led to the rise of Moise. And I remember... In August or September of that year, well, first of all, the international community was pushing very hard for elections to be held that year, 2010, 10 months after that devastating earthquake, which, you know, killed 100 to some, the Haitian government at the time said 300,000 people, which made at least a million people homeless. So the international community pushing very hard for elections. The Preval administration is saying, look, we don't think that Haiti can really do elections right now. It's like people can't really register to vote. We don't have the materials they need. It's like there are other priorities right now. But the Americans insisting. And in August of, the, of that year, as the presidential campaign was getting underway, I went to a protest of people who were displaced by the earthquake and they were holding signs saying the equivalent of we're not voting while living under tents. Right. And so if you think about this, I, I thought it was so strange to me because, you know, in the United States where we believe that, you know, you vote for the leader who will get you out of tents, right. Who will have a housing plan. But when you start thinking about it, it, 
and it made sense because the Haitians were saying, those Haitians were saying, basically, we're not going to give our democratic imprimatur, our stamp of validity to any process until you get us, until you give us something, right? And that's like the last thing they have. You wrote a piece on the on the LRB blog in, in March about Moise's presidency. And one of the things that you draw attention to is the difference between elections and democracy. The idea that you have elections every five years and there we go, that's democracy. Is this, I mean, it's sort of, it's a, it's a completely facile attitude, but it... It's the one that the United States has adopted in Haiti time and time again. It's the sort of form over substance. And eventually what you find is that the forms get hollowed out and they have no substance. And so Haitians for a long time have been calling these elections selections, right? Or shams, or I think of them as Potemkin elections. And in, in your piece, you, t- you tell the story of Moise's assassination and his presidency alongside or, or through the experiences of a friend of yours that you first heard about it through a WhatsApp message from this friend. And one of the things that's, that draws attention to that's quite important that is all this talk of I'm not sure it's quite right to call it high politics, but anyway, the talk of elections and presidents and so on. And, and, and again, that's the sort of, it's about, as you as you just said, it's about the, the form without the substance, it, paying very little attention to the, the experience and the lives of ordinary Haitians. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, the past, for my friend, uh, along with countless others and in different ways, the past three years have been devastating. You know, she, as I wrote in the piece, she sells, secondhand clothing and sandals in an outdoor market, which is the way that a lot of Haitians, Haitian women um, make money, right? So they are doing reselling. But you know, when she, when there's insecurity, uh, she can't go out to sell. Um, Not even if she were brave enough to do it, there aren't people out there to buy things. She's fond of saying, which means um, sitting around won't get you anything. But, you know, over the past three years, she's like had to go home numerous times and sit around and wait for um, things to get better. And, you know, the, the insecurity has disrupted lives. I mean, it's interesting. COVID really disrupted the lives, lives in the United States, right? People weren't going out for a long time. In Haiti, it was less COVID for a long time and much more, much more the insecurity, the fear that you, that something terrible would happen while you're conducting your business. So universities shut down, schools shut down. There are no, there are no tourists, nothing like that. Um, it's been a very, very difficult time. And you'd say in the that your, your friend trained as a nurse, but she couldn't get work. Is that because there just aren't enough there's not the money to i mean there must be a desperate need for nurses there's a desperate need for nurses right and there are, and there are and there are tra- there are people who trained as nurses and yet there aren't the there's not the money or the places in the hospital to yeah. yeah that's a that's a story unto itself that's a story about like for private or for profit universities often unaccredited in Haiti that sort of sell dreams sell the dream of like you know, having a career as a kind of helping profession. Um, and she she basically was among the many who were kind of taken in by that promise. Her little sister is also going to nursing school now, but um, she's at a better school that, you know, knock on wood, will get her a job. 
So the pro- the problem is it's a kind of Trump University. It, pre- it, pretend- it pretends to offer it offered it offered training that but you don't actually. Yeah, exactly. There's so many Trump universities. It's not that she qualified as a nurse, but then couldn't find a job. It's that actually her qualification doesn't Correct. qualify her. Okay, right. That's awful. Well, it would be awful either way, but and and in, I mean in, that, in questions of, of, of healthcare, that as you've said before, that after the last peacekeeping force brought cholera to Haiti, and that. And and also and then there were a lot of children who were born between teenage mothers and, and peacekeeping troops and that these that it does seem that all all outside interference just seems to end up making everything worse. But but on the other hand, the US can't can't just walk away because the, the US has so much responsibility for so much that has gone wrong. But if they have that responsibility but what could they realistically, practically, helpfully do to improve the situation rather than just making it worse again? That's a difficult question. That's a difficult question. But I think that it starts with not doing what they've been doing for 30 years, right? Like try something else. Maybe instead of instead of pushing for hasty elections, as the Biden administration is still doing, I think that there's, as of today, they're still saying September for elections. September, my God. Um, instead of doing that, you know, there's a, there actually is, it's very difficult right now in Haiti for people who are not, I mean, as, as I think the piece notes, there are like eight elected officials in office in Haiti right now. So, so in that vacuum, you know, electoral politics really doesn't, electoral politics doesn't sort of produce leaders who can guide the country in a credible way. You know, and and that's hard. It's hard for people to sort of get legitimacy. But there is a group of there's a huge group of civil society organizations that have gotten together that are basically urging the United States just to like step back, try to listen to them, support. Um, you know, I mean, there there are problems with an unelected civil society group, of course, but it's a lot better than pushing for elections that are likely to produce leaders like Martelli and Moise, right? So I guess I would just say, look a lot more at process, like think more a lot about the process of democracy, rather than, you know, the kind of outcome or the short term look of it. And in March, you wrote about the um, a hearing of the, of the US House of Representatives Foreign Affairs Committee, where there was a Haitian witnesses were talking about what they felt they needed the US both to do and not to do. And then you quote this um, Congressman Brian Mast, who's a Republican from Florida, saying Haitians individually within Haiti need to look in the mirror and say, we can't rely on America. And it, it's sort of implying that the trouble is that they're too dependent on foreign on foreign help, which seems to be getting things so back to front. But if that's that attitude of US lawmakers, and that's what I mean, in a sense, that's what the Haitian civil society are up against. It's very difficult, right? Like it's, um, I mean, these kind of scripts are so deeply embedded in, you know, the American culture's head. This idea that Haiti is a poor black nation and therefore its people must be very needy and they can't help themselves and they're just, you know, at best victims. Um, But, you know, that's not, that's not the case at all. But it's hard for, I think, the United States to kind of think, for a lot of lawmakers in the United States to kind of not think that way. They have a lot at stake in their understanding of America, I guess. Looking ahead now, and I know it's sort of impossible to make predictions, but 
So the Biden administration is still pushing for elections in September. And if that were to happen, presumably someone, maybe, um, what's he called, the, the current leader of the Senate, who was the interim president, but has just stepped down. Someone like that might be elected president, but that wouldn't necessarily change anything. Yeah, I think it has to, I think that, you know, this group of civil society leaders is calling for a transition period long enough to kind of restore the electoral machinery. And again, I think that it's the it's it's for the United States to support to start by listening to that, you know, that group of civil society leaders that met over the weekend and that has produced various that has, you know, I think produced a map for a way forward. And I think that the idea is to what I would like to see my lawmakers doing is engaging with that and engaging with the ideas presented in that roadmap. Again, I don't, I think, I think that it is crucial that, you know, a transition period, that there is a transition period that is long enough to support the things that you need for elections. And there's so many things that you need for elections. You have to be a pretty healthy democracy to pull off like a good election, a fair election. You have to be a place where like people aren't scared that they're going to get shot when they go out to vote. You have to be able to provide every citizen a way to register his or her voice. You have to have faith that your leaders actually are going to represent you and represent your interests. And that's the thing probably that the United States has corroded the most over these past 30 years. And you, you talk about in your, in your piece about how you, you were going to go and was it your friend's wedding or you were going to go to Haiti and you had to cancel the, you had to cancel the trip because of them, because it, it simply wasn't safe to go. When do you think you might be able to, to go back to Haiti or hope you might be able to? Oh, it's such, it's so sad to think about. It's really sad. It depends. Okay. So it depends on many things. So it depends on, you know, whether in some ways I should be clear for all of the, the, the Moise was, I say in the piece that he was the most despised man in Haiti. And I think that's right. When he died, I should say, however, that even his most vocal opponents are really, everybody's very shocked Saisie is the word, you know, seized up by his death, um, by his murder, and very shaken by it. And I'm, I hesitate to say that I, that I hope that it will be a wake up call. Because, you know, we said that, I've hoped that about Haiti so many times, you know, ranging from the earthquake to after cholera and the peacekeepers. And I mean, so many wake up calls have been kind of administered. And my country still sleeps, right? <laughs> but you have to hope. Pooja Bhatia, thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. You can read Pooja Bhatia's piece online now. The rest of the issue will be out soon, with John Lanchester on cheating in sport, Alison Light on Barbara Pym, and Adam Mars-Jones on Act Up.